Philippians 3 and verse 1. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 9. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I especially love that ninth verse, such a clear statement pertaining to the imputed righteousness of Christ. This was Paul's hope. This should be your hope. Certainly is my hope. Oh, let me be found before God on that day, on that judgment day, not with my own righteousness, which amounts to filthy rags, but with the righteousness of Christ, which is indeed a perfect righteousness imputed to us, received by faith alone, the reception of which gives us a perfect standing with God that is as good and as secure as Christ's own standing with God. Oh, may that indeed be our portion. This afternoon, however, that's not what I want to focus on, at least not directly. I want to call your attention to this exhortation given in the very first verse of the chapter, Philippians 3 and verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. The psalmist oftentimes refers to the Lord as his refuge or his place of protection. Psalm 18 and verse 2 provides a good example of this. Listen to the terms that pertain to shelter or protection. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust my buckler or shield, and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. So note the terms, rock, fortress, high tower. 
All of these terms are used to depict the safety or the security that the psalmist found in God during the times when he felt compelled to run to God for the protection that God affords. If you can picture the inhabitants of an ancient city being beyond the walls of that city and then discovering an invading army descending upon the city, so they drop whatever they're doing, they flee back into the city to know the protection that the high walls of that city afford them, then you have a pretty good idea of what the psalmist means, spiritually speaking, when he finds himself compelled to seek refuge in the Lord. How often do you feel yourself to be in need of the Lord as your fortress or your high tower? The trials of life may sorely press you. You feel yourself to be in circumstances that are above and beyond you. Like the psalmist in another place, you say, From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee, When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Psalm 61, 2. Now, in a very unusual and practical way, Paul is dealing with that kind of situation in the words of our text in Philippians 3 and verse 1. I must admit that I had read Philippians many times and had failed to see this. Notice his exhortation, Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. That's easy enough to understand, isn't it? Not always so easy to do, but not so hard to understand. And I should point out here that the word finally has led some commentators to believe that Paul initially intended to end his epistle with this final thought and exhortation. But then as he continues, other things come to mind and the term finally doesn't end up being so final. A lot of preachers, I suppose, follow Paul's example that way. Personally, I don't care for it when a preacher sets me up into thinking he's about to finish and then doesn't finish. I don't mind that he may go on longer, but I just assume he simply go longer and not lead me to believe that he's really in the finally phase of his message when, in fact, he's not. I like the explanation of one commentator on this word who points out that the word doesn't always convey the idea of finality. The exact same word is translated differently in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 1, where it reads this way, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus. This is not a final thought, then. It's a further thought. I'm not just sure why the translators didn't translate the verse the same way here in Philippians 3 as they did in 1 Thessalonians 4 in verse 1. But at any rate, the exhortation is given to rejoice in the Lord. I'm sure you know, if you know anything about Philippians, you know that there is an emphasis in this epistle on joy and rejoicing, more so than in any other New Testament epistle. You see it in a number of places. Chapter 1, verse 18, 
What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Or chapter 2, beginning in verse 16, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. And then there's chapter 4 and verse 4, another exhortation or command. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Now all of that is well and good. We lump these verses together along with the verses where the word joy occurs and we're able to discern that there is indeed a very strong emphasis in this epistle on the theme of joy. What then is unusual and striking about this verse in chapter 3 and verse 1? We'll look at it again. And notice that Paul is saying that he doesn't mind writing the same thing to them. He doesn't mind making something a point of emphasis by being repetitious. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, or as another version puts it, it is no trouble to me. But then notice the effect that Paul says his repetition in writing the same thing will have on them. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Paul's repetition, in other words, was contributing to their safety or their security and protection. That's why I reference those verses in the Psalms that speak of the Lord being our refuge and strength and fortress and high tower. Paul has the same spiritual concept in view here by telling the Philippians that his writing the same things contributes to their safety. But let's carry this idea now a step further by noting again that the thing that Paul writes repetitiously is for their safety. He writes to them to rejoice in the Lord. He'll write to them again in the next chapter to rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice, chapter 4 and verse 4. Here's the thing that I had never seen until focusing more closely on this verse in chapter 3 and verse 1. Rejoicing in the Lord contributes to our safety. Rejoicing in the Lord contributes to our finding refuge in the Lord, knowing him to be our high tower. And so arguably, on the other side of the coin, you could say the inability to rejoice in the Lord contributes to our insecurity or our vulnerability or our danger. The inability to rejoice in the Lord will leave a Christian weak and vulnerable. Wouldn't you agree that if rejoicing in the Lord bears a connection to our safety and protection, then this matter of rejoicing in the Lord should gain a heightened sense of importance in the Christian's life? 
I can't help but wonder if many Christians regard this matter of rejoicing as simply something that's nice. Who would deny that it's better to be happy than to be sad? Who wouldn't deny that it's more pleasant to be joyful than it is to be depressed? And so the joy of the Lord can be viewed as more a luxury than a, safe, than a necessity. It's nice when you can do it. But don't we all know that there really is no such thing as a Christian who rejoices in the Lord all the time? Is that really what Paul is after? Is that really what we're supposed to do? Some time ago, I was sent an article written by David Murray entitled, Eight Ways Preachers Harm the Depressed. Listen to some of these. In answer to the question, what kind of sermons harm depressed and anxious Christians, Murray notes, sermons that overstress the moral evils of the day, sermons that include graphic descriptions of violence, sermons that demand, demand, demand. This next one I hesitate to read. It almost comes too close to home. Sermons that are too loud for too long. Oh my, ouch. Now here's the one that cuts to the chase of what I'm dealing with now. Sermons that extol constant happiness as the only valid and virtuous Christian experience. Sermons, in other words, that suggest you're supposed to be happy all the time. I think I know what Dr. Murray means. He's making reference to the kind of sermons that tell the Christian that there's no room for sadness or depression or anger if you are in any kind of state other than euphoric joy and happiness, then you're backslidden, you're living in sin, and all those statements in the Psalms that show the psalmist complaining to God, those must be expressions that spring from the psalmist's sin nature, right? Well, one might well ask in lieu of Dr. Murray's statement that if constant happiness is not the only valid and virtuous Christian experience, then why is Paul's epistle to the Philippians, even in the New Testament, with its constant emphasis on joy? And I think the solution to what is really only a dilemma on the surface is found in understanding exactly what we mean by Christian joy. Does Paul only have in mind a kind of euphoric sensation that pertains exclusively to an emotional experience? Or could it be that there's actually more to it than that? I believe we'll see in the course of our study today that Christian joy is something deeper than a sense of euphoria or a subjective experience that suppresses any and every other kind of emotion. So what I want to do now is consider this theme of joy or rejoicing, and I want to consider it in its connection to the kind of safety that Paul mentions 
in chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Let's look at this theme then of the safety of rejoicing in the Lord. And in analyzing this theme, we'll devote the bulk of our time to what it really means to rejoice in the Lord. And I'll only take time to mention at the very end a number of ways that this rejoicing provides safety to the Christian. If we're going to know the safety of rejoicing in the Lord, then we need to know exactly what Paul is talking about. So consider with me first how we rejoice in the Lord. What does Paul mean by this? How we rejoice in the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones is very helpful here in his commentary on Philippians. The first thing he sets out to do in his message is to demonstrate that Paul is not calling in this exhortation for the Christian to attempt to manipulate his own emotions so that he's happy all the time. And the proof that this is not what Paul is calling for is found simply by the fact that the exhortation comes to us in the form of a command. Very tempting at this point to read a large segment of Lloyd-Jones. Let me quote for you at least a portion of what he says here. This is now coming from his commentary. Now as we look at that first question, how we are to rejoice, and ask what it means to rejoice in the Lord, the first thing that strikes us is that it is, as we have said, a command. It is not a description of the state in which we find ourselves so much as something which we are exhorted to do. The tendency is always to think of joy as some subjective state or condition, and of course, ultimately it is. And yet the very fact that Paul commands us or calls us to rejoice is proof positive that it is not something which we experience in a purely passive or subjective manner. We are not to sit down trusting and hoping that we shall suddenly begin to rejoice. No, we have to do something in order that we may rejoice. And it is something that we are capable of doing. These words are not just an intimation that we should passively expect or hope that something will happen or take place in us and that then we shall suddenly feel tremendously happy. He continues, This whole question of joy in the Christian life has often caused a great deal of confusion. If I may so put it, many Christian people are unhappy because they are not experiencing joy. Their whole idea is that joy is the result of things that happen to us. They believe that we have no control over it, that we are not capable of making ourselves rejoice, that joy and rejoicing are the end result of the iteration and interoperation of a number of forces and factors, most of them without, but some of them within ourselves. And they say, as a result of all this, we are either happy or we are not. But that, it seems to me, is an error which is constantly exposed and denounced in these New Testament epistles 
And here it is exposed by the very fact we are given a commandment. We are to rejoice. It is something we can do. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say that the way to render obedience to the command is not by trying to manipulate or attack our emotions in such a way that we suppress what we're truly feeling if it's not joy, and we try to control the atmosphere in such a way that we endeavor to create joy. There are churches, you know, that take that kind of approach to joy and rejoicing They think that the style of worship must be altered in such a way that people that come in feeling cold and miserable must be subjected to a kind of style in their worship that will lift them out of their doldrums, so to speak. And what better to accomplish such an aim but fast-paced music and bright and cheery song leaders and musicians and a preacher that can, through his personality, be exuberant and passing on joy to his hearers. Oh, my. Whenever I'm asked, why is it, preacher, that people have left our church? I have to sadly acknowledge I guess it means that I've lost my personal magnetism and I no longer can attract them by my joy or my magnetism of joy. The most that this kind of approach to Christian joy will be able to produce is what Lloyd-Jones describes as posed Christians. Post-Christians are those that try to portray the image that they're joyful. They're mindful of the fact that oftentimes the world perceives Christians to be downcast and miserable. The Puritans in particular are caricatured this way, unfairly I might add. So in order to avoid communicating a bad or distorted image of Christianity to the world, The Christian strives to pose as someone who is joyful when inside he may be anything but. Lloyd-Jones notes that post-Christians turned out to be some of the most depressed Christians in all of Christendom. So far then, in our consideration of rejoicing, I've been describing things to be avoided. Avoid emotional manipulation. Avoid the art of pretending. There's a name, you know, for pretending Christians. They're called hypocrites. When I think of Christian joy, the place in Scripture that readily comes to my mind is the Beatitudes. We studied the Beatitudes, you may remember, a number of years ago when we went through the Sermon on the Mount and we considered at that time that the word blessed is a term that literally means happy. But it doesn't mean happy in simply a shallow and external sense. It means deep down happy. A happiness that finds lodging deep in the soul of a Christian. I don't think it's improper to draw the connection then between this deep down happiness and the joy that Paul is calling for in our text. 
Now, in the Beatitudes, you do not see emotional manipulation. You see, instead, a sense of dependence on God. That's the meaning of blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit speaks of the very opposite of self-sufficiency. The subjects of the kingdom of heaven are those that recognize such dependency. They are the ones who are blessed. They are the ones who are happy. The recognition, then, of dependence on God. It's the same thing Paul describes in verse 3 where he writes, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. But not only are the true subjects of the kingdom of heaven those that realize their dependence upon God, but they are also those that mourn over their sin. Blessed. Now remember the meaning of that word, okay? Blessed, happy, blessed are they that mourn. Almost seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Blessed speaks of happy, and yet the ones that are happy in this instance are mourning. Mourning is an expression of lamentation or sadness. They are mourning over their sins. They are also longing for something, longing or hungering and thirsting after righteousness, which is certainly an indication of their awareness that they don't have that righteousness in and of themselves. And so these Beatitudes, especially the first four, become very instructive in the realm of of rejoicing in the Lord. You want to heed the command to rejoice in the Lord? Then recognize your dependence upon Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You want to heed the command to rejoice in the Lord? Then mourn over your sins. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. You want to heed the command to rejoice in the Lord? Then submit meekly. Blessed are the meek. Submit meekly to the terms of the gospel. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And you want to heed the command to rejoice in the Lord? Then don't focus directly on joy or rejoicing. Focus instead on righteousness. Blessed, happy, joyful are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. For they shall be filled. I never have forgotten a key to that text. How blessedness or happiness or joy is never found by seeking it directly. It only comes as a result of seeking something else. In this case, righteousness. I believe the thing that really springs out of the Beatitudes that creates this deep down heartfelt condition of joy or happiness or blessedness is hope. The Christian may be without that euphoric sense of pleasure that he certainly does experience on occasion in what may be called his mountaintop experiences of the Lord. But Christianity is not exclusively mountaintop experiences. 
I've done studies in the past, and I've read and I've heard sermons that point out that the disciples in the Mount of Transfiguration certainly knew a sense of heightened and ecstatic joy in the presence of the glorified Christ. But alas, they had to come down from the Mount. They desired to stay there, and understandably so, but they had to come down back down to a world of strife and challenges and affliction. So the Christian is not called upon to strive to produce mountaintop feelings. He won't always have the kinds of emotions that go with those mountaintop feelings, but the thing that he always will have and the thing that he should never be without and the thing, therefore, that enables him to rejoice deep down at all times is his hope and his fellowship, frankly, with Christ. Interesting to note, isn't it, that when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and I'll never forget when a preacher pointed this out and how striking I found it when it says simply that Christ came with them down from the mount. You might be in the midst of circumstances today that could only be described as abysmal or depressing. You might be facing financial struggles, physical struggles, emotional struggles, relational struggles. And these things might be pressing you so hard that Paul's exhortation to rejoice might even seem a bit ludicrous to you. Don't you know in the depth of your heart that whatever trials and challenges and affliction you're facing right now, these things are only temporal. They are but for a moment. They won't last, especially in terms of eternity, Not only are your trials but a vapor, but your entire life in this sin-cursed world of sin and veil of tears is but a vapor. That's the point, you know, that's emphasized again and again by Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. The happy times are vanity. The sad and depressing times are vanity. The maddening times are vanity. All of which means that this world is transient in nature. The word vanity literally means breath. Your life is but a breath, a vapor. If you've been outside on a cold day, when you see your breath, then you know that the duration of what you can see is but for an instant. What a fitting emblem to describe your life in this world in all its highs and lows. And in the depth of your heart, you know that the best lies ahead. The best is before you when you'll be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and then made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God forever. So how did Paul rejoice in the Lord? Paul, and I've been stressing this all along, Paul was not experiencing circumstances that were conducive to making one happy. He was in prison. He was facing the prospects of execution. And there were those that were glad he was there and saw Paul's misfortune as the opportunity for their own promotion. And Paul was aware of that. But it was his hope 
that enabled them to rejoice. It was the certainty of assurance that to die was gain. It was the hope that he expresses a little further down in this third chapter of Philippians, verses 8 and 9. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. How then do you rejoice in the Lord? Well, you don't attack or try to manipulate your emotions. I think a good and practical way to heed the exhortation is to heed the Beatitudes. Don't try to be sufficient in yourself. That's what emotional manipulation amounts to. Strive instead to know your dependence on Christ and don't treat your sins casually. This is what the saints at Corinth were doing, abusing God's grace and practically turning it into license to sin. Don't be happy in sin, but mourn over your sins and submit yourself meekly to the terms of the gospel. You've heard me say it many times that the essence of gospel obedience is to count yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. That's from Romans chapter 6. Count yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. And you'll notice that Paul does not say, feel yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God, when in fact you might be feeling, no, I am very much dead to God and alive to sin. Paul's not calling on you to try to twist that and distort it and make it different. No, he's saying, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And you don't, this sim- you don't do this simply by pretending. You do this by recognizing there is a just basis for me to count myself dead to sin. I count myself dead to it because Christ died to it. And I'm joined to him, and so are you. And I count myself alive to God because Christ is alive to God. And I'm joined to him. And so are you. And so positionally, we are dead to sin and alive to God. Practice the gospel that way. And recognize your union to Christ. Can I say, Can I say, Yay. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Love that enthusiasm, brother. (laughs) Keep in mind, we are Presbyterians here, though. (laughs) Okay? And hunger and thirst for righteousness that you don't have, but that's been freely given to you. And know in your heart that those that are poor in spirit, who mourn over sin, and are meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness, and are persecuted for righteousness' sake, These are the ones that will inherit the earth. And it won't be this earth that we now know that will be our inheritance. No, it will be a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more pain or strain, where every tear will be wiped away and we'll be united at last with the saints in glory and we'll add our voices to the choir that will sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength 
and honor and glory and blessing. If you will practice the Beatitudes then and rejoice in the Lord that way, and especially by rendering gospel obedience, this will keep you safe. This will be your protection. Let me just mention a couple of ways in closing as to how that's done. You will be kept safe from the stressful circumstances of life. Think of the example of Paul in this instance. We must be careful not to treat Paul as if he were superhuman. No, he was in prison. He knew the injustice of that. But he couldn't be pulled down because of it, because he knew what he had in Christ. Okay? So you'll be safe from the stressful circumstances of life. You'll be safe from false religion. False religion really has nothing to offer, especially in comparison to what true Bible-based Christianity has to offer. You'll be safe from a lack of assurance, knowing that the true circumcision are those that rejoice in Christ, and you'll be safe from the burden of sin. Okay? I actually made a note to myself here, and I didn't follow up on it, and initially I was going to preach on this text. Maybe I'll save that for next week. In Nehemiah chapter 8, you remember that scene in Old Testament history? They've come back to the land. The city is being rebuilt, rebuilt under very difficult circumstances amidst great opposition. And we have an occasion where the book of the law is opened and read. Imagine that, a service that goes from morning to beyond noon, which amounts to a simple reading of Old Testament scriptures. And the impact of that was to cause the people to weep. And so the priests had to restrain them. Don't weep. This is uh, a joyful day and a joyful occasion. Uh, cease from weeping and recognize that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I believe that the thing that had to be explained to the people on that occasion that enabled them to rejoice was the fact that the altar had been rebuilt and the sacrifices were being offered again and those sacrifices pointed to the ultimate sacrifice which would take away sin and that was Christ. And that's how we rejoice and that's where our strength is found. May God help us then to rejoice, to rejoice in the Lord. Devote yourself to Philippians, but to a right understanding of what this joy really means. Don't bring yourself in bondage by trying to twist yourself into some kind of emotion that uh, it is not God's design for you to have 24-7, 365 but recognize that what you are and what you have in Christ does run very deep in your heart and enables you at the end of the day to rejoice even in circumstances and in times when others are not able to do so. Oh, may we hear and heed Paul's command then. Let's close in prayer. 
O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we pray that thou wilt help us to rejoice in the Lord, not by working ourselves into some kind of emotional frenzy that we have to strain at in order to obtain. Lord, help us not to pretend uh, when it comes to this matter, but help us to know how blessed we are. May we indeed know that we're dependent on thee. May we mourn over sin. May we meekly submit to the gospel. May we thank thee for the righteousness imputed to us. And may we, O Lord, at the end of the day, know that this joy is the thing that runs deepest and is most durable, no matter what else we're experiencing. So, Lord, give us the needed grace to give heed to thy word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.